0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's
0: Dossie. I to pick your brain on the truck. Hi,
1: account. my name's Jenna Johnson.
0: I'm- this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, April 13th. Today, what you need to know about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, plus a police shooting in Minneapolis and the singular voice of DMX.
2: We all woke up this morning to these headlines that the CDC is recommending use of the vaccine be paused. This morning, the FDA and CDC announced that out of an abundance of caution, we're recommending a pause in the use of the
3: Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine.
2: And this is caused by reports of six people who have developed a serious blood clotting condition. Paige Cunningham reports on healthcare policy for The Post. These cases were in women between ages 18 and 48. And so the CDC and FDA are recommending, not requiring, but recommending that states temporarily pause administration of the vaccine for two reasons really. One is to give an FDA advisory panel a chance to really look at the data, review what's going on. And then the second is to allow medical providers around the country to assess what's happening and think about how they can talk to their patients about the risks and assess whether they should get the vaccine.
0: I also think it's important for us to understand that, you know, there have been 7 million doses of this vaccine that have been given already. And we're talking about six cases that are drawing concern right now. So how should people be kind of thinking about the risks of this vaccine and understanding the the data of, of what is
2: really the problem here? Risk is a really important conversation here. The decision has drawn some criticism from people who are pointing out exactly as you say, these are only six cases out of almost seven million people who have received the Johnson and Johnson shot.
1: I know that the information we're providing today is going to be very concerning to Americans who have already received the Johnson and Johnson or Johnson vaccine. And I want to let you know what we're doing to learn
3: more and to protect people in the meantime and what you can do to be on the alert.
2: And there's two things I would say here. The first is we don't know for certain that these cases wouldn't have developed without the vaccine. Blood clots happen. They're rare but they happen in the general population. So that's the first point to be made. And the second point is, even if there is a connection between the vaccine and the development of these blood clots, it's still true that this is extremely rare. This is the whole reason that we didn't see instances of the blood clots during the Johnson & Johnson trial. Their trial was large. It was 40,000 people, but we're talking about incidences of blood clots of about one out of every million people. The clinical trials just aren't large enough to pick up these really, really rare incidents. But there's a real spirited debate now going on about was this the right move for the CDC to make? Because a lot of people are going to read headlines that say blood clots and Johnson & Johnson. They're not going to read further down and look at the actual numbers and the actual findings. They're just going to hop online and maybe cancel their Johnson & Johnson vaccine appointment that they had scheduled for this week or next. Well, and that's,
0: somewhat similar to what we saw with the AstraZeneca vaccine abroad, this conversation about blood clot risks and the fact that there is uh, what seems to be a kind of uh, pulling away from wanting to opt for that vaccine. So is there a sense that these two problems with the blood clots and these two different vaccines are linked or a sign of something more large about the vaccine technology that they use?
2: There is a similarity between these two vaccines and how they work. Unlike the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which those use a technology called mRNA, both AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson use this modified version of what's known as an adenovirus.
3: It's plainly uh, obvious to us already that what we're seeing with the Janssen vaccines looks very similar uh, to what was being seen with the AstraZeneca vaccine One is uh, the AstraZeneca is a chimpanzee adenoviral vectored vaccine. The uh, Janssen is a human adenoviral vectored vaccine. So um, I I think we I can't make some broad statement yet, um, but obviously uh, they are from uh, uh, the same general class of, of viral vectors.
2: And that basically sneaks genetic material coding for the coronavirus protein into the recipient cells. All that to say, this is a different mechanism by which the vaccine works. And it seems likely at this point that there is some kind of a connection between the response in the immune system that's being prompted by this vaccine and what we see in patients who do develop these types of blood clots. In Europe, we have seen regulators Uh, pull back somewhat on AstraZeneca. They're actually recommending that people younger than around age 60 or so get other kinds of vaccines. But they're still saying when you consider all of the risk factors, the risk factor of dying of COVID-19, of being seriously hospitalized, those things are much greater risk factors than this potentially very rare blood clotting disorder.
0: So the goal with the recommendation to put this vaccine on pause in the U.S. is to look more closely at the data about to what extent this actually is happening, that it is a problem, and also to provide information to doctors about how to recognize potential problems with blood clotting if they come up. So what is the timeline for that? Like, are we looking at months and months before the the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is recommended again for being administered? Or
2: is this a problem that we could have answers to in a week? Well, I would say we're going to have to wait and see how many more reports there are in the U.S. of blood clotting. If we're not seeing, I mean, so far we only have six reports if that remains to be the case and we don't see that number grow substantially i would expect that we'd only see this pause last for a couple of days that's what the cdc sort of said in their briefing this morning well the time frame uh, will depend obviously on what we learn in the next few days however we expect it to be a matter of days for this pause and they stressed again that this is an opportunity just to kind of take a step back take a deep breath look at the data, and then make sure the healthcare community has time to learn what they need to know about how how to diagnose, treat, and report any incidences of this happening. So it's hard to say for certain right now. I would be surprised if the U.S., totally stepped back from the vaccine. And the other thing that U.S. health officials have stressed is that Johnson & Johnson is a relatively small part of the whole vaccination effort at this point. Less than 5% of the shots into arms actually have been Johnson & Johnson. We've got lots of Pfizer and Moderna doses. And then, of course, we have a couple of other vaccines waiting in the wings to be approved as well.
0: And I would love to talk a little bit more about what the potential ramifications of this could be, considering that there is a huge battle in this country to tamp down on vaccine hesitancy. There are still many people who don't plan on getting vaccinated and are worried about it. And I would imagine that this might contribute to that, especially for a vaccine that is easier to administer, is one dose, doesn't need like super cold freezers, and is the optimal vaccine for a lot of places that are harder to reach. How
2: do we expect all of this to play out? The announcement from the CDC did elicit some frustration today and folks who were pointing out that, you know, one out of every million people Even if it was higher than that, we'd still be way below the fatality rate for dying from COVID-19. And so I think there's a lot of fear about the messaging, especially in a country where we do have a lot of vaccine hesitancy. And even now we're starting to see initial hints in some uh, states, mainly Southern states, that they're already starting to get to the end of their population that wants to get the vaccine and now have vaccines sitting on the shelf that people aren't asking for. On the other hand, you know, you can really look at this pause in this very, you could say, conservative approach to the vaccines as further reassurance that our public health regulators are very serious about transparency, making sure that people understand and know about everything that's going on so that they can evaluate the risk themselves. So, I mean, I would argue that this uh, should further actually increase people's confidence in the vaccine. But I'm not sure that that's how it's really going to play out among the American public. I know that we said that
0: this is incredibly rare, but I think that there are many people who are sitting here reading the news right now thinking, oh my gosh, I just got this vaccine. Should I be worried? What if one of these incredibly rare cases happens to me? So what is the scientific advice for people about what they should be looking out for or if they should be looking out for anything, if they are worried about the side effects of this shot?
2: So this condition that we're seeing is called cerebral venous sinus thrombosis or CVST. The symptoms of this condition do vary, but experts have said they can include headache, blurred vision, fainting, or loss of consciousness, loss of control over movement in part of the body and seizures. The difficulty can be that some of these symptoms that, that can come along with this condition could be symptoms for any number of things.
3: Treatment of this specific type of blood clot is different from typical treatments for other types of blood clots, which usually involve an anticoagulant called heparin. With cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, heparin may be dangerous and alternative treatments need to be given, preferably under the guidance of physicians experienced in the treatment of blood clots.
2: And so I would say probably the normal medical advice w- would just stand there in that if you're experiencing any, any kind of serious symptom that you should probably reach out to your medical provider. And what's your medical advice for people who have recently received the J&J vaccine and may be concerned about yeah. blood clots?
4: Well, I mean, if someone recently within days, I would tell them to just first of all, don't get an anxiety reaction because remember, it's less than one in a million. However, having said that, pay attention. Do you have symptoms? Headache? Do you have shortness of breath, chest discomfort? Do you have anything that resembles a neurological syndrome? And obviously, if you have something as serious as a seizure, I mean, that's pretty clear. But the manifestations of this are that headache is the very common component of it because the sinus thromboses that they have is the draining of the blood in the brain, and it will cause enough symptomatology to make you notice it. Just tell people to just watch out for not feeling very well.
0: So Paige, what is going to happen next in this?
2: Well, tomorrow, we're going to see this FDA advisory panel, which is made of independent experts outside the agency. They're going to meet tomorrow to assess the cases and their significance. And, you know, this is the group that has been reviewing the requests from the various vaccine makers to get emergency use approval. They've, you know, previously reviewed Johnson & Johnson's data, um, looked at Pfizer's and Moderna's as well. And so tomorrow, they're going to be taking a closer look at these cases, uh, you know specifically what happened in each case, and then I think assessing what the next step should be after this. Paige Cunningham reports
0: on healthcare policy for the Post. The story was produced by Ariel Plotnick.
1: Just before 2 p.m. on Sunday in a suburb of Minneapolis called Brooklyn Center, there were reports of a police shooting, and this turned out to be a fatal police shooting of an unarmed black man that came as a result of a traffic stop.
0: Kim Belware is a breaking news reporter for The
1: Post. Police stopped Dante Wright, who is a 20-year-old black man living in Brooklyn Center. An officer filed a single shot, and what we knew immediately from police is that Dante, who was in the car with a woman who we believe was his girlfriend, drove a few blocks and then crashed his car. Uh, He was later pronounced dead at the scene, and his passenger was taken to a hospital, but she seems to be okay. There was a lot of questions immediately after. Protesters were gathering around. They want to know what happened. According to Dante's family, they initially said that he was on the phone with them when he was getting stopped.
5: He called me and he said, "Um, Mom, I've just been pulled over. I said, for what? He said, they said they pulled me over because I had air fresheners hanging in the rearview mirror. I said, "Okay, we'll take them down. That is Dante's
0: mother, Katie Wright, on Good Morning America.
5: And then he said... "Um, He said, well, they're also asking for insurance. And I said, well, when the police officer comes back up to the window, um, give him the phone and I can explain and give him all the insurance information. He said, "Okay." And then um, the police officers came back up to the window and asked Dante to step out of the car. And Dante said, for what am I in trouble? And the officer said, we're going to explain that when you step out of the car. So and they asked him to put the phone down. And at some point, the line went dead. I tried to call back three, three, four times. And then um, the girl that was with him answered the phone. And she said that they shot him. And he was laying in the driver's seat, unresponsive. And then I heard an officer ask her to hang up the phone again. And then after that, this is the last time I've seen my son. I haven't seen
1: him since. this situation came as a result of what police are calling an accidental discharge of the officer's weapon. They shared police body camera footage on Monday with a room full of reporters and members of the community. And in this one minute clip, We see two officers pull over Dante right in his car. They're on either side of his vehicle. At one point, he is outside the vehicle and he's being searched by an officer. And then a third officer comes into the frame. This is an officer later identified as Kim Potter. She's a veteran of the police force. And Dante, at some point, starts to struggle. And when he does and he tries to get back into his car, you hear Potter off camera yelling a warning that she's going to tase him. And then she says again, and then per department training, yells, taser, 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 three times. But when she fires, it's her service weapon. It's not the taser. Dante takes off in the car, which crashed several moments later. And as he drives away, we can hear Potter seeming to realize uh, her mistake. The shooting not only makes Brooklyn Center the latest flashpoint, the latest city to grapple with, an instance of an unarmed black man fatally shot by a police officer, but it's also happening against the backdrop of the Derek Chauvin trial, which is happening just 10 miles away in Minneapolis. Chauvin's murder trial for the 2020 killing of George Floyd is arguably the biggest police trial in Minnesota state history. And tensions have been high almost since last year, but especially now that we're nearing the end of the third week of the trial, things are really, really heightened. Buildings are fortified. People are on edge. And with the jury looking to begin deliberations sometime perhaps in the next week, they're going to be sequestered. There was even a question if the shooting in Brooklyn Center would affect the trial. The defense for Chauvin argued that the jury should be sequestered now and not wait until deliberations. Judge Cahill, who's presiding over the case, declined to do that. But it's clear that there's definitely a um, Um, an effect that it's having.
0: And in this shooting, what do we know about the officer and what are the next steps in the investigation into exactly what happened?
1: What happens in Minnesota in any instance of an officer involved shooting is that the case is immediately taken over by the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. They'll do an investigation because they're considered an independent agency of the local police force. What we know about Potter whose name was released uh, just several hours after her body cam footage was released, she served for a long time and she also was, I believe formerly a union representative and she's been the officer who has advised and guided different officers in their own cases of fatal shooting incidents. The police chief declined to give a lot of details about her or her record at the press conference yesterday, which did seem to anger a lot of members in the community. So we don't have a lot of details yet as to what, you know, any potential disciplinary record looks like or what other high profile cases she may have been involved in. But we do know that she's someone who is experienced and and has almost three decades on the force, which led a lot of community members to question how a mistake like this could be made.
0: Yeah, the idea that you could just pull a gun rather than a taser, that those would be so easy to confuse in the moment. Like, does that actually happen? Is is there reason to believe that that is actually a, a frequent point of confusion?
1: Well, during yesterday's press conference with members of the community and members of the news media, The Brooklyn Center police chief did go over the different training and protocols that officers have when it comes to using their tasers.
4: For informational purposes, we train with our handguns on our dominant side and our taser on our weak side. So if you're right handed, you carry your firearm on your right side and you carry
3: your taser on the left. This is done purposefully and it's trained.
1: But it was a question that the mayor of St. Paul raised during a news conference he had with Minnesota's governor on Monday where he asked things like, can we make tasers look significantly different? Can we make their grips feel different from a firearm?
3: We have to ask ourselves questions like, why do we even have tasers that operate and function and feel and deploy exactly like a firearm? Why can't we have tasers that look and feel differently? That you could never mistake for deploying a firearm, so that we can ensure that that mistake, which has happened before, can never happen again.
0: And what do we know about Dante Wright and who
5: he was?
1: Most of what we know about Dante Wright has come from his family. My son was an amazing, loving kid. We know that he was 20 years old, he had a young son, he had dropped out of high school, but was looking to get his GED. He had a big heart, he loved basketball. He had a two-year-old son that's not gonna be able to play basketball with him. He worked at a fast food restaurant to support his son and was someone who was just described as sweet and goofy. He had sisters and brothers that he loved so much. He was an uncle a grandson.
5: He had a smile that would light up the room. It was so big and bright. And he was just, he was amazing. And he's my son and he's never gonna, he just had his whole life taken away from him. We had our hearts pulled out of our chest. He was my baby.
1: Yesterday, my, my colleague Robert Samuels also turned up a really unexpected link between Dante Wright's killing and the George Floyd case. And that was from Courtney Ross, George Floyd's girlfriend. She actually knew Wright as a student because she was a dean at the school he attended. And she described him as skinny, goofy, fun-loving. She also echoed the point that his family made, that he had a, a learning disability. And she said that he was a, he was a kid who was gentle and funny and that he just needed extra support and he needed extra love from his community and also, she said, extra protection. So considering that the shooting is happening at this
0: incredibly tense moment for the city in the middle of the trial, what has been the reaction both from officials but also from from people on the streets?
1: As far as the community reaction, it's followed a lot of the same patterns we've seen from previous incidents where police officers have shot unarmed people. There have been vigils.
5: He was a grandson. He was so much more. And he did not deserve this at all. My heart is literally broken into a thousand pieces. And I don't know what to do or what to say. But I just need everybody to know that he is much more.
1: There have been protests and at times as the night wears on the protests have turned destructive in in some parts there were reports of businesses both on Sunday night and on Monday night that had been looted and damaged
3: It, it feels like we're in a war zone listening to these flashbang grenades it hurts our ears Feels like we're in the middle of a war zone. These
6: things can hit
1: people. But from everything that we've seen and heard on the ground, and this is pretty consistent with these other protests, is there are these peaceful protests during the daytime. And not that they aren't angry or emotional, but they aren't destructive. And then inevitably, there is an escalation in the police force, which then causes a more escalated reaction. And this is something that officials have been acutely aware of during yesterday's news conference led by Minnesota Governor Tim Walz. He said that, you know, he's frankly tired of doing this and and not for him, but for the entire community.
4: We don't have to continue having these press conferences and having what may be a routine traffic stop and in... 20-year-old dead, a family devastated, and a community on edge.
1: He also said some things that we haven't heard a lot from officials before, which is that he really seemed to try to validate and understand the community's grief and their anger and wanted to give them space and said, you know, they need space, they need to be able to grieve, they need to be able to emote and let this out.
4: This state, this community, and this nation needs to have a place to grieve and to express in many places, their anger that this continues to go on and their expectation that things need to be different and need to change.
1: And this is something they're also having to negotiate with the police, Uh, notably the... Brooklyn Center Police did uh, have a resolution they were working under for last night, which limited the kinds of munitions and, and force they were able to use on demonstrators.
4: I'm going to demand that the legislature finally hold some hearings on some of these reforms, as I said, that have passed in other states and have proven to make a difference. Things that are supported by both law enforcement and community members. Things that we know that would reduce the chance of a routine traffic stop escalating into a loss of life.
0: That's interesting. So it sounds like in some ways officials, politicians have maybe come up with a better game plan of of how to navigate these moments after a shooting when a community is justifiably incredibly angry and frustrated and scared and sad. But I also wonder what this says about policing in the Minneapolis area, in the state of Minnesota. Like the fact that this continues, even at this moment of incredibly high scrutiny, what does that say about whether or not policing is actually changing in the ways that many departments promised after the death of George Floyd last summer.
1: One community organizer that I spoke to yesterday who's also close with the mayor of Brooklyn Center and supports him, he said absolutely nothing has changed since George Floyd's death. Absolutely nothing. And while the response from the community has maybe changed, maybe they are more organized or or more targeted in their demands, and while the responses from Uh, civic leaders may have become more sophisticated and more responsive, there really hasn't been any meaningful change that is addressing how police officers are trained, are funded, or are held to account. Even though Chauvin's trial is getting a massive amount of attention, it is still pretty unusual to have an officer stand trial, particularly a white officer stand trial for killing a black person.
0: Kim Belware covers breaking news for the Post. Jared Goyet contributed reporting. The story was produced by Renny Spranovsky. On Tuesday afternoon, Kim Potter, the police officer who shot Dante Wright, resigned from her job. She wrote in a letter that it was, quote, in the best interest of the community. Brooklyn Center Police Chief Tim Gannon has also resigned. We also want to make a correction on this story. In a previous version of this episode, we misstated a Brooklyn Center Police Department policy about guns and tasers. We said that tasers are kept on the dominant hip and guns on the non-dominant hip. As you heard from the former police chief, it is actually the other way around. When you
6: think of DMX,
0: what is the first thing that you think of?
6: I think of his voice, his really singular voice. Uh, uh, He had this very raspy, gravelly tone to his voice that no one else has in music. I also think of his voice in the sense of what he was rapping about, which was really pain and trauma.
4: Listen, listen.
6: Bethany Butler covers pop culture for The Post. He had a, a very painful childhood that he's talked about and included in his songs, and he also talked about it in his memoir.
4: You know, you get to beat, you're in the house, you can't even go anywhere, you just gotta take it, but I'm, I'm not dead.
6: There is a lot of pain at the heart of hip hop, but I think that he was able to channel it in a way that no one else did, certainly not in the era in which he got famous and released his first few albums. So DMX died on Friday
0: at the age of 50, and... The heyday of his music, I think, was like late 90s, early 2000s. And so I wonder, what do you think is the legacy that he leaves behind, considering that it's been a few years since he was really kind of at the top of the charts?
6: You know, when he came out, Bad Boy, you know, Puff Daddy, that was sort of what hip-hop was at that moment. Really shiny, glossy, slick, you know, videos and production. And DMX came and he sort of had this raw, very real way of talking about his own life and what he had experienced and sort of the experience of the people that grew up around him. So it was really very different. And I think it was that sort of striking entrance into hip hop that really set him apart.
0: And it's interesting you use the word raw to describe both his voice and the way that he talks about his experiences. Because I think that there is a real urgency that you hear in his music that, as you said, is different from, I think, other rap that was happening at the time. I'm thinking of the song X-Gun, Give It To You.
4: X-Gun, Give It To You
0: just the opening sounds of that song, I feel like they just sort of like fill your your chest with adrenaline, like you're about to run a marathon or something, or be in a superhero movie. And it feels like that was the energy that he was channeling, like this sort of raw, unfettered intensity that I think was really remarkable.
6: Yeah. Let me tell you, I was in high school in the late nineties and there was not a pep rally where you did not hear a a DMX song. Like it was that real, you know, get fired up, get excited. You know, it could be like, you could listen to him in the club. I wasn't in the club when I was in high school, but (laughs) you know, you could listen to him in the club. You could listen to him in the car, you know, it, it sort of translated anywhere you would go. And, you know, maybe you were listening to a great beat and his singular flow, but if you really took the time to listen to the lyrics, um, there was some deeper stuff in there, even for, like, a party song, like, or what is considered a party song, like Rough Riders' Anthem. I mentioned Rough Riders' Anthem, and there's a line in there where he says... And, you know, that song is really, it, it does feel like a party song. It feels sort of like, you know, let's get amped up. But he still sort of infused it with his experience. Like DMX was kind of a, you know, he had these wounds that he just bared for the world to see.
0: What are some of the other qualities that made his music iconic or
6: memorable or singular? You know, he had a lot of references to spirituality and religion in his music. And one thing I think about is he had these interludes called the prayers. And they're sort of these iconic, no frills conversations with God that he has, you know, amid his other songs and his hits on his albums.
4: I thank you, Lord, for my birth and everything that's followed. There's something better after here. But everybody don't go.
6: And, you know, the fact that people remember not just a song, but an interlude, something that sort of was part of his album, but nothing that, you know hit the billboard hot 100 you know this was really just dmx sort of raw uncut bearing his soul and i think that really captures who he was as an artist
3: nobody pray for me it
5: been a day for me yeah yeah
6: kendrick lamar has said that dmx's first album it's dark and hell is hot that that was the album that really got him writing music and you know he said that it was because it was so raw and so vulnerable and I find that interesting because I think you know Kendrick Lamar is obviously one of the greatest rappers of his generation
4: sit down sit down
6: And he talks about a lot of his own experience. So you can definitely see that influence. And I think, you know, as a culture, we've sort of moved forward in terms of talking about trauma and talking about mental health and addiction. And DMX was sort of doing that at a time when we weren't widely talking about that and it was just part of who he was as an artist.
4: cuz you out there running your mouth, really don't know who you dealing with. Here we go again. How many times do I have to tell you rap cats I have no friends. You still act up. When around here like some brand new chick.
0: Bethany Butler covers pop culture for the post. The story was produced by Jordan Murray Smith.
4: Now, some of the dudes with most of us don't. That's just how I was a for my people that'll keep you looking see through whatever you try to creep through.
0: That's it for post reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Mohammed. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at PostReports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.